we all have moments where we doubt ourselves and where we think like, oh man, this is not going to work out. And what was I thinking? And blah, 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 you know, but there's always something that comes along that is an opportunity to challenge ourselves. You're listening to Disrupting Balance, the podcast, where we are busting myths and breaking balance. Here's stories from women who are pushing boundaries to navigate the decisions and changes that come with work, womanhood, and winning. I'm your host, Hanifa Barnes, speaker, decision strategist, and master imbalancepreneur. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Hope you enjoy. Today in the guest chair, we have children's author, Christine Platt. Some of you may know her as Afro Minimalist on Instagram. And in this episode, you will hear more about her life with minimalism and how she's living with less in her 600 plus square feet of space with her daughter. You will also learn about how a disappointment from the publishing of her second book led to an unexpected book deal and also hear her interesting take on why she believes all divorces don't have to be ugly. Disrupting Balance is all about sharing the stories of women embracing imbalance. And so let's find out, what's Christine's story? Ooh, that is a loaded question. Uh, <laughs> what is my story? Um, I think my story is that, um, you know, I'm a young um, woman who has, I feel like I've lived many, many lives <laughs> in my past, um, in my past 43 years. So to me, that's still young. Um, you know, I think we sometimes tend to look at age in the way that society does, which is like, oh, you're getting, yo, you're getting older, right? But like, <laughs> I could have a whole nother uh, you know, lifetime ahead of me. So I still, I still consider myself young. And my story is that um, over the years, I have learned to sort of um, move from living for others' expectations, realizing that this life is my own, and like, what are my expectations, and what are my intentions, and what are some of the things that I want to work on. Um, and that story has sort of led me to to who I am from you know, starting out as a lawyer um, and moving into doing anti-racism work, moving into doing um, writing and then writing for children, um, and then also cultivating uh, a minimalist lifestyle. All of these things have just sort of been transitions and chapters in my story um, that have made me who I am today. You know, when we spoke, I knew immediately your story was definitely a disrupting balance story because you have a lot of these shifts and transitions throughout your narrative. Mm -hmm. And even just now you mentioned um, being a lawyer, then going into anti-racism and then writing and minimalism. So tell me about, you know, those shifts, those points of shift in your life. How did you manage those shifts? What did that look like for you? You know, it's interesting. I think sometimes um, life shifts us. And then I think sometimes we create our own shifts or disrupt the balance, as you would say. And so um, all of them were different, right? I mean, I think shifting with work is always one of those things where um, 
there comes a, a point in in your career and it's different for everyone where you know no amount of money is worth sort of the sacrifice that you're making um, for your time for your health you know and so there's a shift that has to happen for you to do something different to look at something different um, there are shifts um, that just kind of occur, <laughs> which I feel like that's sort of what happened with minimalism, right? It's sort of like, I was like, I have too much stuff. I can't keep living like this, right? And so me just sort of starting that journey shifted into um, a whole lifestyle change and a platform and a way for me to um, help other, um, specifically people of color, sort of embrace the idea of minimalism and intentional living. Um, it is, you know, traditionally a white space. Um, but you know, that shift was me just making that own personal decision for myself. So I feel like there's all sort of, um, all sorts of shifts that happen and it's, you know, really how we choose to, um, acknowledge them embrace them and confront them, you know, that sort of is, is what makes the difference. In embracing the shifts, let's take a step back to your discussion on minimalism, because you actually introduced me to that, what minimalism was when I followed you on social, when we, I was following you on social media. Mm. So I had no clue what it was. And, you know, I had my own preconceived notions after even looking at your feed, but after listening to conversations where you talked about it, I kind of had a better understanding of how I should adapt it to my own way of life. So for those who may not have a sense of what that is, can you kind of explain what is minimalism? There's like different uh, definitions and interpretations, right? And the reason, well, let me first answer your question and then I'll, I'll talk about why it is um, so confusing for so many people and why it was for me initially. So minimalism is really this idea and, and practice of living with less, living with only the things that you need and, um, you know, the things that essentially bring you joy, right? Um, and so I think, you know, many of us are familiar with the whole Marie Kondo sort of, you know, the spark joy kind of thing, right? Yeah. Um, but the other side of that is that, um, you know, minimalism is really about intentional living, right? And so where the disconnect often happens is the aesthetic that is often associated with minimalism, which is this all white barren aesthetic, um, you know, really high end sort of items, you know, <laughs> uh, a few high end items in this large, you know, vast space. Um, you know, it has people like, well, what is that? Like, oh, well, minimalism is just, um, you know, a very rich aesthetic that is not really attainable for, for most people. So, um, when I started doing my own research on it, and really I was just looking for a way to kind of live with less and have a simpler lifestyle, um, I discovered that, oh, it's, you know, it's not really so much the aesthetic as it is the practice, right? So there's the aesthetic of minimalism, and then there's the practice of minimalism. Most people cannot and should not <laughs> try to um, embrace the aesthetic of minimalism, right? Um, and instead focus on the practice of living with intention. And that is why, you know, minimalism will look different for everyone. For me, it's Afro minimalism, because the things that 
bring me joy and make me happy are the things that are at the focus of my life's work, which is the history um, and culture of the African diaspora, right? So there are things in my home that are going to reflect that, right? Um, and they, may, they might not necessarily um, conform to what um, the aesthetics of mainstream minimalism is, and that's fine. Um, but all of us can commit to living with intention and should commit to living with intention. Um, and that's really what minimalism is. That makes a lot of sense, especially when you frame it um, in this thought or idea of intention. Mm-hmm. And I think people can absolutely connect with that idea of living with intention mm-hmm. and then kind of funnel that down into minimalism and apply it to their own lifestyle, which is great. So my question then is, you know, why did you want to pare things down? Why did you want to simplify your life? What was going on with you and at what point to make you say, look, I've got to make a change? What was happening? Yeah, I just I had too much stuff. And I, you know, I had a lot, it was organized chaos for the most part. Um, but it was just too much stuff. And I just remember like, you know, opening, stuffing stuff in my drawers and like opening the closet and looking at, and I was just like, I just have too much stuff, you know? Um, I ended up, and, and I, let me also say this, I didn't even realize it, um, until I, I had left my, um, job at the Department of Energy. Um, At the time, I had been working as a senior policy advisor. My days were crazy. (laughs) My nights were crazy. Um, I was writing. It was just a lot. And I ended up, I was like, wow, you know, I haven't even really taken a break since law school. I'm going to try and and work on writing full time. And so what happened was that I ended up being home all day, right? And this is what's happening sort of right now with COVID-19 is that people who are away from their homes for the majority of the day are now home all day. Yep. And when you're home all day, you really have a sense of how much space you actually use, how many things you actually use, right? How, um, like, how you have maybe um, spending habits that that you no longer can engage in, right? Because you're mm-hmm. home. Um, and so, yeah, there's this whole sort of awareness process that happened for me where I was just like, wow, like, I don't need this, all this space. I really don't need all these things. But then I didn't know where to start, right? Because um, I had, it wasn't just my closet, like it was just home goods and knickknacks and, you know, um, and so, yeah, I ended up having to, um, I ended up having to do some real soul searching. <laughs> um, and, and like I said, it's a space that I think a lot of people are in right now. And I think it's beautiful that we, you know, we all have the time, um, and awareness to sort of, um, to, to look at these things now and say like, what, what do I really need? It's in this, mm-hmm. Right. And what do I really need that's in my closet? At the end of the day, you realize, especially in times like these, that what is important are our connections, our relationships, our health, our well-being, right? And some, you know, yep. some of those things that seem so important two months ago <laughs> have gone out the window, right? So, um, yep. So yeah, that's kind of how it started for me. Um, and I, you know, I've always said and, and tell people all the time, 
there's no way that you can live with intention in one area of your life. It's, it's without a doubt going to trickle into every area of your life, you know? So it may start with your home and it may start with your closet and then it just feels so good and purposeful, you know, that it moves to your relationships and your spending. Like there's just no way that it can impact only one area of your life. So tell me about your journey to writing and why did you decide to write? Because you've had quite a distinguished career as a lawyer, working in anti-racism law, working at the Department of Energy. So tell me about that movement into becoming a writer or were you already always a writer? You know, it's interesting. I think I always was a writer. Um, I, I definitely wrote a lot as a child and wrote poetry and short stories and did all these things. Um, and, you know, I can't pinpoint the moment, but I'm sure somewhere along the way in my childhood, I must have mentioned to someone like, oh, I want to be a writer. And someone discouraged me because, <laughs> um, yeah, it is it is a very natural and wonderful um, sort of creative process for me. So I ended up, um, I guess my writing career officially started with, excuse me, National Novel Writing Month. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think that was November, 2013, maybe. Yeah. Maybe November, 2013. And, um, me and one of my friends, we decided we were going to do national novel writing month. She challenged me and I signed up for the challenge and I ended up, um, you know, the, the challenge is to write 50,000 words in one month which is essentially, wow. Yeah. Yeah. What it, what it is, is essentially the first, a really good first draft, of, uh-huh. um, you know, a novel or nonfiction, whatever book you're working on. So, um, I wrote about, you know, the book now published as the truth about a Ouija. Um, but it really opened up this whole love for writing and research and all these things that had sort of been pushed away in the other work that I was doing. Um, and the truth about a Ouija ended up getting me an agent. So the truth about a Ouija was published independently published. I published it myself, um, in March yeah. of 2015, uh-huh. by May of 2015, I had an agent. I spent that summer, um, working on what I thought would be my next book, my next novel, okay. Afro-German um, narrative. And um, there was a publisher that we thought was going to pick it up. And it was oh, it was so exciting. And, you know, and when that deal fell through, it just sort of destroyed me creatively. And I was just like, am I a one hit wonder? What was I thinking? Yeah. Why did I quit my job? What am I, you know, like I just, it was, it was so much. Um, and so I really struggled, I would say for about a, over a year, almost two years, just trying to find myself again, creatively, um, still trying to work on that narrative. I went to writing retreats in Tuscany and all these different places, right. To try and like foster that same creativity and joy that I had when working on a Ouija and it just never happened for me. So, um, it was actually when I was, uh, it was 2016, it's 2016, no, it's 2017. Sorry. <laughs> All these years are mm-hmm. 2017 when I was at the writing residency in Tuscany, um, 
my agent had, um, she had asked me if I was interested in writing a children's, working on a children's series. And I was like, you know, I don't write for children. I can't curse. I can't say all you know, <laughs> things. Like, what am I going to talk about? Um, but this particular publisher was looking for an African-American writer to write a four book children's series on African-American history and culture. And so I was like, well, that kind of is right up my alley. So I'll try it. I like threw together, you know, a couple pitches for stories, literally work on it for like an hour, maybe an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. when I was in Tuscany, I found out that I'd gotten the deal. And I was like, this is so wild that I've been working on my second novel for like over two years and not figure it out. And like, here it is. I get this, you know, deal. So that series was Anne and Andrew, which is now on like, I don't know, book 18. So I did the first four. They wanted another four, then another six, then Shiro's, then, you know, and as you know, it's just been like nonstop with the children's books. And so, um, yeah, that's how it happened for me. And I think, you know, I love telling that story because um, there's so many lessons in it and there's so many shifts in it. Right. Uh, yeah. in terms of like, we all have moments where we doubt ourselves and where we think like, oh man, this is not going to work out. And what was I thinking and blah, 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 you know, but there's always something that comes along that is an opportunity to challenge ourselves. Right. And so writing for children was definitely a way for me to challenge myself and be open to trying something new. Um, yeah. it ended up being a whole career and game changer for me. And I'm always like, obviously I'm supposed to be writing for children because these stories yeah, much easier than the second novel that I still haven't finished. So mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, it's sort of, um, yeah, it's sort of like divinely all the twists and turns and heartaches and pains and all those things, um, you know, divinely led me to the work that I'm, that I'm doing today, which I love. And what's interesting is if you didn't like push forward, you know, you would never have come to this point where you recognize your ability and your enjoyment and appreciation for children's literature and children's stories. So in that moment, you know, right when that deal fell through, you talked about what you went through for those couple of years with trying to find yourself again and, you know, inspire your creativity. But what made you want to do that? Like, did you have folks encouraging you? Were you journaling to yourself? Were you meditating or praying? Like, what was your process to keep pushing forward to get to this point today? I mean, I think that at the time, I didn't even really know that I was pushing forward, right? At the time, I was just like, I have to finish this Afro-German narrative. I have to figure out how to write the story, you know? Um, yeah, I didn't even look at it as this sort of like, I'm going to get to this point to be successful. To, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. just like mm-hmm. not giving up on that narrative and the idea that I should and could be writing. Right. And I, yeah. I, I just literally always saw myself as a novelist. Um, yeah. And it doesn't mean that I may not write a novel <laughs> another day. But <laughs> right now, um, this is definitely the work that is, you know, very important to me and, and fuels me in a lot of ways. I also had no idea of the lack of representation that was still, um, 
you know, existing in, in children's literature. Yeah. I know it was there when, when my daughter was growing up, but I didn't even realize it still existed. Right. And so there's also mm-hmm. this, you know, whenever you can find your work to be meaningful and purposeful and, you know, it also balances your interests. It's just a beautiful, um, a really beautiful space to be in. And I feel very fortunate. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't be here if I had just given up. And how do you handle all of that, you know, the emotional components and all that you're going through while raising a daughter? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know, man. I feel like moms are like superheroes, right? Exactly. <laughs> like I look back and I'm just like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, all that was going on and I was raising her. Um, yeah, I think we're just superheroes yeah. and we're able to compartmentalize a lot of things because have to. I I dealt with it by, you know, I've, ever since she was younger, I, I always would cry in the shower. That was like my safe space to cry. <laughs> right. You know, I also, yeah. had, you know, yeah. a number of, of writer friends um, and authors who would share their stories, you know, and I, I, I mean, I, a large part of what I experienced was um, what a lot of new writers go through, right? Like now I know rejection is a part of being a writer. Like there's no way that you're going to, um, and I, I can't even say even be a writer. I can speak to it as being a writer, but I think go through anything in life and not have rejection and not have disappointment, right? So, but at the time for me, it felt so devastating because I was so vested. I was so hopeful. It sure, you know, it seemed like such a sure deal and it was going to be amazing and blah, blah, blah. You know, um, now that I'm a more seasoned writer, you know, like I have a, a wonderful book opportunity, um, book proposal that's that's in review at a major publisher. And I'm just like, yep. You know, like you don't get excited like you sign the contract, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it, you, you have to learn to get to that place, right? So. Um, you know, a lot of it was just growing pains. And um, even even with those, you know, pains and disappointments and struggles, I mean, the career that I have been able to establish in five years is something that may normally take authors like 10, 15, 20 years, right? Um, yeah, I remember um, I read an article by by Coates and he was saying, something to the because people were asking him like how did you how did you get here he said you know I started out with like a lot of really great people and you know I'm just one of the ones who didn't give up yeah when I hear the five years I mean it's obvious when you count the years but when you say it out loud even I took a a step back to think wow just five years because I felt like for those listeners who don't know you and I connected through Instagram, right when you started working on The Truth mm-hmm. About Awiti, and you were very instrumental in my writing journey because I was also on a writing process, not doing NaNoMo, but doing a different um, um, schedule. But you were very like forthright and helpful and recommending things, and it was very helpful for me, but I didn't realize that that was just five, yeah, you know, it was, was five, five years, years ago. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> okay. been, it's been, yeah, five years. And like, I always, you know, yeah. I always remember, you know, that article I read with Coates, 
Um, there was an article mm -hmm. by Jasmine Ward one time. Um, she was talking about her writing process. And I remember her saying mm -hmm. something like, you know, if I get through one page a day, it's been a good day, mm. right? And so you learn from yes. all these people who, you know, are award-winning <laughs> writers that it's a hard process. And the only way to, yeah. um, to continue and ultimately be successful is just to keep going. Like you're going to get rejection, you know, rejections, yeah. you're going to have difficult days where you may just get through one page of editing, you know, you're going to have, um, yep. you know, some disappointments. Um, but the process, it's all part of the process, <laughs> but I didn't know that five years ago, I but know. I know that now. I know that now. Yes. And that one page a day is really a life metaphor, yes. right? Because when you think about all of the things that you're talking about that you were dealing with, um, you know, I know some days it's like, I just got to take one step yeah. at a time or go through one moment, one minute yeah. at a time, you know, I just remember to get that through. just taking so much pressure off me, like Jasmine Ward, if she gets through one page a day, she considers it a success. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm sitting over here, like, I got to get through this chapter, you know, and it's like, like <laughs> exactly. wow, it was, yeah, it was, it was very powerful and very, um, very moving. And like you said, yeah, metaphor for life, right? Like, man, if I just get through this one, this is so what, so why do you think, you know, like you put that pressure, we put that pressure on ourselves. What is that about? Is that something that we've carried with us from our upbringing or is that something that we just kind of adapt to through, you know, our, uh, uh, assimilation in society? What, what is it? Where I don't know. I mean, I think from? it's driven by different things, right? You know, that, that was the other thing that was really helpful for me to learn, um, was putting, pressure on my creativity in terms of like, I have to finish this book so that, you know, yeah. I can sell it and then me and Nala can eat, you know what I mean? It's, like, it's so unfair. Right. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I think for me, the pressure I remember with, when I was writing the truth about a the space that I was in was, I just want to tell these stories that have never been told. Right. And that second book, mm. it shifted me to this space of, I want to write this story so I can sell this book and get this, right? Like I had lost touch with the mm. importance of telling these forgotten narratives yep. of the diaspora, right? And so I think, you know, the pressure, pressure is a good thing. It's the intention behind the pressure. Yeah, that, that, that can be problematic. Right. And so, yeah, I was able to write 50,000 words in one month when the yep. intention was so good that like I was coming across all these stories from the African diaspora that, that had never been told. And I just wanted to be the person to tell them and I would stay up all night. I mean, it was just such a magical time to the pressure of, man, I got to get through this chapter I could just edit this chapter today, then I can do this chapter that day, and then I could sell this book by March. And then, you know, like it's such a different sort of space and like creativity. Yeah. Um, and actually, most things don't really work well from that intention. You know, the intention is like, I got to do this to sell it, or I got to do this to make this dollar. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think we put a lot of different pressures on ourselves, but, um, 
you know, it's the intention behind it that is, that can be problematic. I know you're very like transparent on your uh, social media, your Instagram page about your life and your experiences. And one thing that really struck me and it was just raw and honest. And I read the post like several times, like, wow, is that your, Mm -hmm. um, your mental health process and experience and that journey for you. So let's talk a little bit about that, especially considering the times we're in now and the things that people are dealing with now. Mm -hmm. I know for myself, my mental health has taken a different type of turn with all of this, something I'm that's new to me. Um, So let's talk about your journey with your mental health and kind of where you are now and some of your coping strategies. I'm a big uh, mental health advocate. Um, I feel everyone can benefit from um, some form of therapy, um, some form, uh, and whether that be talk therapy or, um, you know, going beyond a talk therapist to um, maybe receive medication, whatever, whatever each individual needs. Um, you know, I'm an advocate for trying to figure out what is mm-hmm. going to work best. Um, so for me, my journey sort of began when I was um, at, uh, it was my first year uh, working at a big law firm. It was just, oof, you know, we're billing and six to 10 minute increments and mm-hmm. we're running all over. And I had a 1900 hour bill. Like it was just crazy. Um, and, and I had this wonderful secretary, <laughs> Miss Angel, may she rest in peace. And she was just this sweet old lady. And she would just look at me, run around like a crazy person all the time. And <laughs> just say like, Mm-hmm. Maybe you got to take care of yourself, you know. Um, and so she actually, um, she's actually shared with me. She said, you know, there's an IEP program, you know, at the law firm. And you can talk to someone about, you know, some of the, because I was like, I just can't do this. This is so stressful. So anyway, at my first, first talk therapy session and mm-hmm. it was amazing. Um, I ended up getting three sessions. Um for free. And, uh, and then I went on to find a black woman therapist who was just, and not was, is, cause she's still my therapist. Um, amazing. And, um, over the years we have, you know, um, done talk therapy as I've shared on Instagram. I, um, have used Prozac, um, in the past and actually recently picked up a prescription <laughs> for COVID-19. Um, and, um, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. when we had our conversation, I, I, you know, I told her, I was like, I'm just saying, can I just, let me have some so that just in case I need, you know what I mean? Like it's cause it's so day by day. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, depending on how long this goes on, like, you know, I might need a little, little support getting over the hump. So, um, yeah. And I mean, I think that's the benefit of having a therapist that you've worked with, you know, for, it's been over 10 years now that that she's seen me as a patient. Um, and so there's a level of trust and understanding, um, that we have, especially when it comes to, um, prescription medication, but, um, I'm, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of it. I'm a big fan of people, getting the help that they need, um, to get over and get through. Um, and I mean, I've been on and weaned off (laughs) Prozac, you know, um, several times over the past 10 years and it's, it's 
great to help me get through some really tough challenges in life that may have otherwise, um, you know, just been very detrimental to me and very detrimental to my daughter. So, And how does it work? So explain kind of the chemical effects of Prozac. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's different for, you know, yeah, different for everyone. Um, a low dose Prozac that, that I would be on, it basically just like takes the edge off, you know, um, in, in terms of like, um, being worried, being agitated, being anxious, you know, falling mm-hmm. into, um, mm-hmm. a state of depression, um, those sorts of things. Yeah. It just yep. kind of takes the edge off. Um, but again, that's just for me and my personal chemical <laughs> reaction to it. Right? There right. are, um, right. you know, there's so many different, um, medical, um, um, and pharmaceutical drugs that are able to help people find the balance that they need. I mean, I think that's mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. what it is. So for me, that little bit of Prozac just gives me just enough serotonin to sort of balance me out. Um, uh, and yeah. so, yeah, and it's normally, um, so I'm on <laughs> 10 milligrams, which is essentially like the lowest dosage that they can give you. Um, but the beautiful thing about having it in, um, that low dosage is, and, and this is of course, after over time, you've, <laughs> you've been with a, a therapist mm-hmm. for a while, you know, being able to say like, okay, this is a tough time. I can do 20, you know, talk to your therapist and say like, I yeah. think I need to do 20 because X, Y, and Z is happening. And she'd be like, okay, yes. You know, let's talk a month to blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. Right. So it, it really is, um, establishing a relationship with a, uh, a therapist that you trust, um, and who you can be honest with and who, who can really, um, commit to helping you find the desired balance that you need to be successful. Why do you think there's such a reservation in the black community with therapy? And mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like it's, it's moved beyond, um, the stigma that was attached to it. Um, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, but still, you know, a lot of work to be done. And and part of that is is more of a um, healthcare system issue than a community issue, right? So there are people who um, want therapy, but can't afford therapy. Yeah. There are people who need prescription drugs who can't afford prescription drugs, yeah. right? And not something like Prozac, you know, to help out with serotonin or whatever like that. Yeah. Like they may have um, a true chemical imbalance that can only be um, assisted with medication. Maybe maybe they're bipolar. Maybe they have, you know, something and they don't have the access right. and the resources to get the help that they need. So I think that, the, you know, there are two really big issues at play and the larger issue really is our healthcare system mm-hmm. not making mental health an accessible um option yeah. right i mean like i pay out of pocket wow well, this is not you know what i mean yeah. it's not something that is covered and have always paid out of pocket it's not something that's covered under health care that in itself is is problematic yeah yeah that is definitely a challenge i want to jump into your experience of in relationships and kind of the unfolding of yourself in the relationship and how that played out for you 
and how it was having a child in that process? My daughter is from a, um, a previous marriage. Um, so yeah, we were sort of blending, um, our family. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it worked out, you know, like I, I went into it thinking, I think the way most young women do, which is like, Oh, I want to get married and I want a husband and I want a family. Right. And then realizing very quickly, um, that marriage is so much more than that. Um, and Joe is great. You know, we are, we are married six years. We we're divorced now. Um, it was a very amicable divorce, which also, you know, I shared online just because I wanted to show people how divorce doesn't have to be this ugly thing that people can get divorced simply because, you know, they didn't, maybe they didn't know each other that well when they got married, which was definitely the case with us. I think from, it was less than six months between the time that we met, Mm -hmm. I got, we got engaged and I said, I do. (laughs) Right. Um, that you can grow apart from your partner, that there are so many different ways um, that marriages end besides something that, you know, I think we see the more traumatic parts of it, you know, like abuse or, um, you know, I don't know, infidelity or whatever, right? Like sometimes, you know, it's a relationship that ended. It's just like a boyfriend and girlfriend relationship, except for you were married. <laughs> and so the process is very, very different. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. And, you know, we, it's so funny. We are closer friends now post-divorce than we were um, yeah. in our marriage, which is so interesting. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we, we both talk about how, um, yeah, man, we just should like never got married. <laughs> yeah, wow. right? um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was, but it was a beautiful, it was a beautiful lesson for me. It taught me so much about myself. Um, it taught me so much about the importance of my happiness and how much I was willing to fight for that. And, um, you know, willing to be embarrassed, willing to, you know, new, you know, like you go through divorce, divorce is, even if it's amicable, like it's, it's uncomfortable. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, you're usually, we were the only couple in our whole circle who, you know, was getting divorced. And so it was, it was just yeah. so uncomfortable on so many levels. Um, but, um, proud of myself and also proud of Joe for, you know, we did the right thing and we are both happier now. Right. And, um, I think that's the, probably the biggest lesson that, that came out of it for me, which is like, how much are you willing to sacrifice your happiness for what society thinks you should do or what things look like are perceived to be versus how you really feel. Right. Because online, I mean, we look like this storybook couple, right? Um, and, right. and yeah, so it was, yeah, we're very proud of ourselves. And um, yeah, he's one of, one of my best friends. And we're both like, yeah, I think we're good on the marriage thing. <laughs> <laughs> that distinction you bring up with, you know, kind of this online fairy tale life versus real life is so interesting because you hear a lot about people young people, 
uh, older people getting caught up on the Instagram life of other people. But what's interesting is you choose to be very transparent in what you share. So your Instagram life is your life. Do you think your transparency is a, is a, you know, a result of that experience or just a result of your experience in general? No, I think it's just who I am. And I think, you know, there are people who, um, you know, their strategy and what they want to promote on Instagram is, you know, they may have a total strategy behind it as to why they're not as transparent. There are other people who choose to be really private. And, you know, I, I mean, I feel like we have to respect sort of everyone's reasons behind behind it. But for me, like I have just always been authentic and the type of engagement that I like to have um, requires me to be authentic, right? Like I want to talk about real stuff and I want, you know, I also want it, I also look at my, especially like my Instagram is like a little, um, almost like a little scrapbook of my life and experiences. Mm -hmm. I love looking back on old posts and I've met so many amazing people um, and found my village on Instagram. And I think part of that has had to do, you know, with the authenticity. Um, That being said, understanding that it is a social media platform and that obviously most people are sharing only the best snapshots of their lives. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think it is, you know, um, very much unwise to get caught up um, in someone's sort of fairy tale life on um, social media. Um, But yeah, it affects, it affects people very differently. Um, I can look at couples, I can look at babies, I can look at puppies, I can be like, Oh, my God, it's so you know, they're so cute. (laughs) And I can close the app. And I'm like, Okay, now what are we making for dinner, right? But there's someone else who can look at that and like, they will cry and they'll be like, man, like, you know, all I've ever wanted was a family and all I've ever wanted, you know? Um, and I, it, it's, it's different for a lot of different people. I've also lived 43 years. I've been married. So I'm yeah, not yeah. looking at a picture of a married couple. Like <laughs> I know, <laughs> I know. <laughs> what marriage is, right? Same thing with looking at, you know, a baby, right? Yeah. Like I have my daughter. Yeah, it's different for so many different people, but I do think, if not managed um, appropriately, that it, it definitely can be more harmful um, than good for a lot of people because there's this tendency to sort of romanticize what's happening yeah. in the squares and in other people's lives and wanting that for yourself, for the most part, is just not attainable. Yep, exactly. It's never going to look like what that person square (laughs) looks like you know what I mean yep so do you ever take like um time to detox and just step away oh yeah I'm off it all the time I people are so surprised because I think there's this perception that I'm on there way more than I am I am so strategic about my time (laughs) as you know as as a lawyer um you know like I'm very much aware of every minute in my life because I have trained, um, to be that way. And Mm -hmm. so, um, when I am on Instagram, it's usually, um, time that I've allotted in the morning. Um, then time where I am like doing something that I need to wait on something, (laughs) right? So like, 
you know, maybe there's food, maybe I'm cooking and there's food um, in the oven. Um, Maybe I'm at the DMV, maybe I'm, you know what I mean? But it's like, I am not on there as much as people think I am. And when I am on there, I am truly, you know, posting and engaging and having conversations and then I'm off because of the engagement that I have when I, when I am on there, I think there's this perception that I'm on there way more than I am, but. I mean, there's no way that I'd be able to get. I know that I get (laughs) be on, you know, Instagram all the time. Yeah, I feel like I have selected Instagram as you know my social media platform of of choice. Yeah, built a wonderful community and village there, um, and I make sure to, you know, check in every day. Um, But it's not a place. I don't. I don't live on there. You know. When we spoke earlier, you talked about this feeling of winning in your life and feeling good about where you are. Why is that? Tell me why you feel good and why you feel like you're winning. Because that's powerful to state and embrace because many of us don't. Literally, you know, getting through a day for me, um, I feel like I'm winning, man. Like I, if I if I get through the day and I've accomplished everything that I've set out to do, I also feel, you know, like, wow, I have overcome a lot and I'm doing what I love. And I think anytime you're doing what you, what you love and you're able to somehow earn and sustain, you know, a living that way, um, it's a really good feeling. Mm -hmm. Like I, I'm in a really good place being in a condo that I can afford, you know, I bought it years ago, um, doing work that I love to do, you know, raising this beautiful girl, having a wonderful village and and friends and community, right? Um, I think my definition of winning is so simplistic in terms of like (laughs) what it might have been years ago, what winning, what I thought winning was, right? And so yeah, I'm I'm just in a really good place and I'm grateful and I'm thankful. Um you know, and, and proud of myself for doing the work to get here, you know, and again, a lot of it is, you know, going back to living with intention, setting those intentions, you know, for myself, for my work, for my life, um, and following through on that. And it feels good. And I don't, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong at all with saying like, oh man, I'm winning, you know, or like, I, it's so important that we celebrate, <laughs> ourselves and celebrate those small wins right especially right now during this time I think I mean any mom that gets through a day of homeschooling she should be like I'm winning I did that today you know what I mean (laughs) like you know it's so important to celebrate those small wins what story will your daughter tell of you First of all, there's going to be some embellishments because she thinks I'm way more amazing than I am, which I think (laughs) is super cute. Um, But I think, you know, I think she's going to tell the story that her mom was, um, you know, this kind, uh, smart and accomplished woman who never gave up. I am Christine and I am Disrupting Balance by living with intention.
Thank you for listening to Disrupting Balance. To learn more about how I'm disrupting balance, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest at Disrupting Balance. You can also check out my website at www.disruptingbalance.com to get podcast updates and news from the Balance Disruptor community about how you can become your very own master in balancepreneur. Talk soon.